0: Good morning. Welcome again to the Blue Collar Economist podcast. I wanted to talk today about something that's been kind of bugging me, kind of sticks up my craw, if you want to say. And that's when I uh, I listen to a podcast or a radio show or a talking head, what have you, and referring to gold and silver, or actually for any any commodity for that matter, and they use the term intrinsic value, and that just uh, I want to pull my hair out. I understand that the economic ignorant or uninformed would say something like that, but when certain people who claim to adhere to the Austrian school say things like gold is important or valuable because of its intrinsic value, then I get pretty sick. Uh, they're not doing any favors for the those who really adhere to the Austrian school. I'm going to get the little in depth where all this intrinsic value nonsense comes from and I'm going to get into some history then we're going to bring it up to modern to to modern times and why that's such an erroneous thing to say before I get off on the wrong foot let's um let's define terms okay let's get the I got some synonyms here from the thesaurus on intrinsic I'm going to read through a few of these. Uh, Synonymous with the term intrinsic is built in, central, congenital, constitutional, constitutive, deep-seated, elemental, essential, fundamental, genuine, hereditary, inbred, that's kind of (laughs) funny, indwelling, inherent, inmost, innate, intimate, material, native, natural, particular, peculiar, real, true, and underlying. So I think before we go we understand that intrinsic means uh, built into or it comes with. Okay and value of course is what I'm going to get more in depth into because That's what defines and separates the Austrian school from all the other classical uh, economic thought out there. I don't want to get into the weeds too deep on that, but let's get started in some of the history of where this intrinsic value stuff comes from. <coughs> I'm going to start, I'm going to go back to uh, the classical economists, I'm going to go back to um, Adam Smith, and by no means let it start with him, but he's uh, the biggest proponent of the thought of uh, what came to be known as intrinsic value. And some of the contemporaries with Adam Smith were people like David Hume and later David Ricardo, Thomas Malthus. Malthus was famous for his um, overpopulation theory, right? John Stuart Mill, uh, and even John Maynard Keynes adhered to this to some, some degree. And I won't talk about Keynes right now. And another contemporary with uh, Ricardo was a guy by the name of Samuel Bailey, who was also British, and uh, or from the UK. Now, they had a theory that came out. What they pondered was um, uh, the relationship between value and price. And this is where they got into the weeds. This is where what, what they screwed up because price and value really are two separate things and they're determined separately. But they couldn't, it seemed like they were bogged down and not being able to discern value and price at times. Now they came up with different terms for value. They had um, things like use value or an exchange value and things like that to try to determine where value comes from. But the most erroneous that came up was was, uh, labor value. What was later known as the labor theory of value, that is to find that goods were priced according to the amount of labor that went into that good that's where t- where it got its value from, that was intrinsic to the good that is built into it because it took x amount of hours to produce this good, it has to be worth this much, and that's where they got into an error. Um, the dangers of the labor theory of value is because anybody who's read the work from Karl Marx, Das Kapital, he relied on this theory to come up with what he called his exploitation theory, or as the surplus value. That is, when a worker produces a good, he he adds value to the good through his labor. And then the capitalist capitalizes or exploits the worker by taking a profit off the worker's value. And that's what he called exploitation, right? And that's also erroneous because that is not how goods are determined. The value of goods are not determined by the amount of labor that went into it. Now, Samuel Bailey is underappreciated in the history of economic thought the Austrians understand his contribution but a lot of the classicals don't. And what's important about Samuel Bailey is that he was sort of an independent thinker. He wasn't in the club, the Malthus Club with, with Ricardo and Mill and Stewart and the others. Um, he kind of thought outside the box. He came up with a, an essay he called The Critical Dis- Dissertation on the Nature, Measure and Causes of Value. And with that, he argued against Ricardo's labor theory of value. And it got pretty contentious. Matter of fact, it was so compelling that he began to turn the other economists away from Ricardo um, and Malthus. He was a type of a proto-Austrian, I'll put him that way, because he came very close to marginalism. Which the Austrians determined. Um, a major problem with the uh, with value and price, with the classical economists, the Smithians, was they came up against what is commonly known as the diamond and water paradox. I'll talk about that a little later. I want to get into the marginalists right now. Now the marginalists came along in the eighteen early 1870s. There were three. Different men, who independently, unknown of each other's work, came to the same conclusion, and that was that the value wasn't determined by labor, but rather by individual valuations. It was subjective to the individual. Um, and these three guys were Carl Menger, William Stanley Jevons, and uh, Leon Valrus. he was French. While Russ became later known as the father of modern econometrics, he tried to do this uh, mathematically. He's also uh, accredited with uh, the uh, beginning of equilibrium theory, where the market uh, tends towards equilibrium. I'm not going to get into that now. Uh, Stanley Jevons uh, was heavily influenced, so he said, by the works of uh, Richard Cantillon, who was an Irish-born Frenchman and wrote a work called Essay, or S-I, E-S-S-A-I. You can look it up on the web and read it yourself. And through that, he, and some mathematics, he determined that, uh, that that value was subjective. And Carl Menger, who was independent of those two, he came up with his own theory as well and he was the grandfather and the founding father of what we call the Austrian school in Vienna. He determined that price, that value is subjective, but prices are objective. And then he went on to uh, shatter the diamond water paradox and explained it. And this is how it goes. It goes like this. Imagine you're in a desert and, uh, I don't know, Let's say you crash landed in an airplane and you just came from a De Beers mind. You were on a tour And they gave you this huge nugget, this big diamond. And you carry it in your pocket. Airplane crashes in the desert. You're out there for a couple days wandering in the blistering heat. And you come along a caravan. The caravan leader has water. Bottles of water. right? And your choice is give up the diamond to buy a bottle of water and live. Or die. That's your choice. So what are you going to do? Well, obviously, self interest and in play here, human action. You're going to spend that diamond to buy one bottle of water. This perplexed the, uh, the classical economists. They couldn't understand this. Why would one do that? Because diamonds are so rare and there's so much labor to drag a diamond out of the ground, right? Pearls aren't valuable because men dive for them, men dive for pearls because they are valuable. It's a matter of subjectivity. Now that is the basis. That is the foundation of the Austrian school. Karl Menger determined through uh, uh, much research and through his work that nothing has intrinsic value. No goods have intrinsic value. Nothing comes with value built into it. Value is subjective to the object or to the individual. I don't uh, value knitting, or the supplies to buy, to buy for knitting the yarn, the needles and that, because I don't knit. It has no value to me. But to somebody who knits regularly, that's their hobby, it's quite valuable. They'll spend quite a chunk of money buying that stuff. To me, it's worthless. I'd like to turn your attention to probably what I think is the definitive work on this debate of intrinsic value. And that was an article that was written long ago by an economist named Gary North. And you can find this article at the fee.org website. That's feE.org. And I'll put the link at the bottom of this podcast. The title of the article is called The Fallacy of Intrinsic Value. Right? And Gary does a great job laying down the groundwork where this comes from, the contemporary errors such. And he points out something very interesting in it. And that is he determines that what uh, many people are doing is they're confusing two things, two, two uh, propositions. One is historic value. The other is intrinsic value. And uh, I'm going to read a little bit from his article. I'm plagiarize, I guess. I'm going to read a little bit from it for this so that you understand what he's getting at. Uh, He said, the confusion rests on a mixing up of two very different propositions. One, gold and silver are historically valuable, and two, gold and silver have intrinsic value. And he says, the first proposition is indisputably correct. In fact, there are few uh, economic or historical statements that could be said to be more absolute. Uh, Professor Mises has built his whole theory of money on the fact that gold and silver, especially gold, were first valued because of properties other than monetary function, that is, their brilliance, malleability, social prestige, and so forth. It was precisely because people valued these metals so highly that they were to become instruments of trade, that is, money. Since they are so readily marketable, more so than other goods, they become money. And that's important, end quote. Uh, like he says in his article, and I have to agree. Today, um, we value silver and gold for many reasons, um, but for the most of the population, people don't trade in value in gold and uh, silver and gold anymore. Uh, it's not permitted, for one thing, by law. So it's a Today it's stored up as a commodity. Now, my previous podcast, I go into depth about that, why gold today is not considered money, although it actually it is, but uh, people don't save it because it's money. It's because of its historical value. Let me say more specifically about historic value. Um, let me put it this way. I'm going to quote from Gary's article again. It's very, very well written. Uh, money must be of all of all these things. That is, it's uh, it's got its intrinsic qualities, not value, but qualities. And that because it's highly durable, easily divisible, transportable, and most of all, it's scarce. All right. Let's not confuse intrinsic value with intrinsic qualities. Um, money must be all of these to one degree or another. If it is to function as a means of exchange, it is vital uh, that we get our categories straight in our minds. It is not value that is intrinsic to gold, but only the physical properties that are valued by acting men. Gold's physical properties are the product of nature. Its value is the product of acting men. And that pretty much sums it up right there. Gold is valuable because people believe it to be valuable. It does have certain intrinsic qualities. It's what we just described. It's, tra- it's transportable, it's highly durable, easily divisible, and so on and so forth, which make it a money um, by the market. People determined it to be money and used it in exchange. Governments didn't determine that. The market did thousands of years ago. And because of its historic value, people today collect gold and silver, for that matter. Silver, more because the, uh, the silver itself is more valuable than the face value of the coin. That's one reason. Um, but gold, because of its, uh, it's a st- always been a hedge in any investment against inflation. When paper money is inflated away, gold is like, has always been this backstop in case, in the event that the fiat currency, the paper money, were to collapse gold could always be there and be dependable to be there to step in as a money. It's always been like that throughout the history of men. I think Gary's article is worth the read. Uh, he does do, at the end of the article, he makes a great case for why gold should be money and should be used as money. Um, if we were on a gold standard today, life would be so much better for everybody. I mean, without a doubt, he would be multiples of times wealthier probably and in a future article or I might do a podcast on it I'm going to talk about um, I'm going to do a parallel comparison between 16th and 17th century Spain and modern China and this is an interesting interesting uh, comparison because both of these uh, nations have at one time Uh, imported mass quantities of gold and silver, mainly silver, in Spain's case, and uh, and there were consequences for it, and I'll get back into that later on, but uh, this has gone on long enough. I don't want to go too much further into this, but uh, thank you for listening, and uh, we'll do it again next time. Goodbye.